This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and acknowledge the ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Colonisation and genocide are still happening in this land to the present day. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hey yo, welcome back to Ospol Snack Pod, the podcast where we bring you bite-sized chunks of Australian news and politics with a side of crispy memes. We are also the official podcast of the Ospol Ship Posting Facebook group, for better or for worse. Come and join us there if you like memes and Ospol and ship posting. My name is Zach Snack, and with me, as always, is friend, confidant, and OG member of my inner sanctum. Hey, I'm Noon on Facebook. I'm Ino Funkenstein. Uh, thanks for uh, coming back and doing the show with me again, Zach. Uh, I know it's sort of you know routine by now, but it's still a nice thing for us to do every week. It's nice, nice catching up. It's nice. And, you know, as always, it's been an absolutely shit week of news. Yes. But um, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm feeling pretty good. Hmm. I've had two cups of tea. I had a croissant. Nice. Ve- vegan nice. Qua- vegan croissant. And uh, I'm I'm ready to dive into some shitty news. How about you? Hell yeah! How's your morning going? Yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, just started some new meds last night um, and slept fantastically Ooh-hoo. as a result. So yeah. Oh, um, very yeah. nice. So I'm I'm feeling chipper and ready to dive into the 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 shitstorm that is like anything that happens in this year or <laughs> continent. Yes, and now the listeners know what both of us have most recently been snacking on, which um. I'm surprised there's a way that we've never opened the show before. Mm. There you go. I actually um, had a really nice savory muffin for breakfast this morning. So oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't. I don't think I've had the chance to eat a savory muffin since, since I've you gone went vegan. vegan and yeah, I, yeah. I miss them. Those little chunks of feta, a bit of zucchini. Yep. That that cafe that we used to skip school and go to mm. had really good savory muffin. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Well, uh, speaking of um, savory muffins, do you want to get little into treats. our? Yeah, you want to get into our entree noon? What have you brought for us to snack on this totally. week? Totally. So um, this was an awesome protest action that happened at the Mantra Hotel in Preston in Melbourne this week um, on the 24th, which is Wednesday uh, this week that we're recording. There were two people who are uh, connected with the Whistleblowers Activists and Citizens Alliance, WACA, um, and they were protesting uh, the, the Mantra Bell Hotel where about 60 refugees are being jailed um the the refugees were brought here under the medevac legislation and they're now being imprisoned in the hotel um and the two protesters uh i was a bit unclear so I, I was watching this mostly on a live stream um which was sort of like point of view but i think there were two of them locked inside this cage that they'd made that was made out of metal and glass uh, and they were there for about two hours while the cops came and tried to cut them out uh, it was it was really fun watching the live stream, and like I know it's not quite the same watching a live stream later on, but uh, we'll post a, a link to that in the show notes, and you should all go check it out. It's good um, watching the activists, you know, talk about the horrors that the the refugees are enduring and the like illegal detention, um, and trying to like explain to the cops why maybe they should be trying to break, you know, this is the wrong thing to be trying to get people out of, and that they should be trying to get the uh, mm. the you know illegally detained people out of their you know Im- uh, imprisonment. Um, For sure. They were very cool under pressure. They were. Being cut out of this. Because uh, they were locked on to the cage as well mm. with ulo- uh, bicycle Bike locks yeah. around their necks. Uh, and the cage had glass uh, panels on it in mm. order to make it more difficult for the cut team to get in. That's yep. the kind of... Yep. Um, that's the strategy. And yeah, so they're getting like cut out of this cage, but all the meantime, just keeping up the patter, talking about why they're there and like asking the police like why aren't you trying to bust out the people who are illegally imprisoned three yep. floors below us and they're like oh um, look mate we're just doing our job uh, we have to be here we don't have any choice and the the protesters are like no you you literally do have a choice like you could <laughs> stop you could complain to your superior officer or whatever and the, the cops actually weren't the- wearing badges or IDs either which is super cooked um like that just seems to be a standard part of police operation in Australia now to not be wearing ID um yeah yeah fucked there was also the moment where um 
they decided to try and cut through the cage using an angle grinder. Mm. And the second that they started it up, the blade flew off. Fell out, yeah. And, and the person doing the, the live stream just started laying into the cut yeah. team, being like, normally the cut team's actually pretty good. You know, I think they're all right, but I don't know about these guys. <laughs> I thought these guys were supposed to be professionals. Or like, we were much safer before they started trying to cut us out of here. And so, yeah. Anyway, um, I just wanted to read two quotes. One's from Sam Castro, who's a, a spokesperson for Wacker, and she said, uh, Minister Dutton, the Department of Home Affairs, along with the Mantra Hotel chain, should be aware that the pressure to end mandatory detention is only going to increase. And um, there's going to be ongoing sort of a uh, couple days of actions from the 7th to the 9th of August. And again, we'll post links to that um, in the show notes. So if you're interested in trying to support these protests and trying to help these uh, people being imprisoned for no good reason by the Australian government, you can. Uh, and here's a quote from Ishmael, who's one of the detainees from inside the Mantra Hotel. He said that uh, the, the refugees are sick and the sickness was caused by mandatory detention. We were put here uh, where we experienced horrors, torture, abuse, humiliation, discrimination, and negligence. Since we are brought, uh, we didn't get any proper treatment, and clearly the government didn't bring us here to get treatment, but to punish and torture us more till we become insane or commit suicide. Um, and, and the people inside the hotel are actually doing amazing activism as well, which gets covered less than... Uh, activism by people on the outside but um they've been doing some cool stuff they've been doing banner drops um they've been doing creative activism they've been writing songs and doing videos of collaborating with artists around the world Mm. to do like dance videos and shit um and recently also they barricaded themselves inside some rooms inside the hotel and they were fined for breaching coronavirus restrictions because of being inside this room together they were also charged with trespass inside the hotel they're being imprisoned in like it's just just ridiculous. Doesn't that just tell you everything you need to know about the way that this government and the police enforce coronavirus restrictions? Totally. That I could you couldn't you couldn't come up with a better theoretical situation to yeah. describe how selectively those laws are applied. And like that um sorry, go on. I was gonna say there's sort of an extra layer of irony, which is that like the government is putting these people at a huge risk of contracting coronavirus by keeping them in this yep. hotel. And last month, there were um, more than 1,180 healthcare professionals signed a joint letter to the government calling for the men to be released. And this is just one line from it. Failure to take action to release people seeking asylum and refugees from detention will not only, only put them at greater risk of infection and possibly death, it also risks placing a greater burden on wider Australian society and the healthcare system. So, yeah, the doctors think... They shouldn't be in there. Anyone who cares about human suffering thinks they shouldn't be in there. But Peter Dutton wants to take away their phones um, so that they can't communicate with anyone, uh, which is just so disturbing and potentially unconstitutional, some people reckon. Uh, I'm not sure about that. But yeah, um, there's definitely going to be legal challenges about that. And actually, Mm. uh, a couple days later on Friday, some people from Refugee Solidarity Mianjin in Brisbane went to Dutton's office to try to citizens arrest him for crimes against humanity, which never works, but is always a great stunt. Um, But I don't think they saw him there. So anyway, yeah, that's Uh, that's about it for that story for me. Um, Yeah, solidarity to the men who are still locked up in Mantra and across the uh, heinous and punitive immigration system across this country. Yeah. Um, definitely, yeah, follow the, the Facebook page, uh, Manus to Mantra, as well, mm, if you want mm. updates from the men themselves on the inside. Uh, cool. All right. Well, now we might move on to... Shitpost of the Week. So, new listeners of the show might not know, but there are shitposts and there are shitposts. And this is definitely the latter. So... This mm. is a, a segment and we, where we usually like to award it to some OC, some original content memeage from the Ospol Shitposting Facebook group. But just very occasionally, a, a real-life politician puts out a real-life shitpost that's just better than anything that anyone could come up with. Could have like, come to up be with, funny. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, so this week, this one goes out to Tim Smith MP, who I believe is the member for Q... Uh, he's, mm-hmm. he's a liberal, state liberal uh, politician, uh, known for basically being, I would say, the most active troll in the Victorian Liberal Party. Would you agree, Noon? Yeah, definitely. And like that's official and on record. Um, he has <laughs> he he's really been behind the hashtag dictator Dan thing. That's basically been him and like a couple of other people. Um, but this is just like the latest of you know uh, a career of Tim Smith being 
mean to Daniel Andrews on Twitter. Um, and in fact, the leader of the Liberals, Michael O'Brien, um, who you can always remember that he's the leader of the Liberals because you can't remember his name. Um, but uh, he told Tim Smith to rein it in a bit, and Tim has not. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, he definitely hasn't with this fucking perla. So he tweeted this earlier in the week. Chairman Dan has blamed Victorian family gatherings, quote, getting on the beers for a spike in COVID-19. What about 10,000 illegal protesters, quote, getting on the bongs? Dan's hypocrisy of not applying the law equally has resulted in further pain for everyone who has done the right thing. So, obviously, you know, right off the top there, we've got 10,000 illegal protesters getting on the bongs, which is just yep. one of those... Premium content. You know, it doesn't matter how many monkeys with time typewriters you had, you'd never you'd never get a phrase with that much poetry, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just it rolls off the tongue. Getting on the bombs. There's a reason he's the Liberals premier shit poster. It's the reason he's shit poster in chief down here in Victoria. Um and uh, I was discussing this uh, tweet with my partner earlier and she pointed out how funny it was that he's put getting on the beers in quotes and he's also put getting on the bongs in quotes as if they're uh-huh. both attributable to Daniel Andrews, uh, mm-hmm. which is a hilarious detail. Um, also, strong racist overtones with the Chairman Dan thing, which he's really trying to make happen. As he he noted it's noon. lucky for him that Daniel can be shortened to three letters because otherwise that, you know... I don't know. You'd <laughs> yeah. have to come up with something slightly different. Yeah. It wouldn't scan quite as well. The other thing I like about this is that um, Gem and Dan has blamed Victorian family gatherings. Like, he's really reaching for that, it's a war on families rhetoric that mm-hmm. the right loves to tap into. But then cut to like a couple of days later, and suddenly the right is all up in arms because it looks like one of those families who are at the center of a cluster might have been celebrating Eid or a Muslim family. Um, and. So suddenly it's like, oh, well, some family gatherings are bad, in fact. Uh, but these motherfuckers totally. just can't make up their minds about whether the lockdown laws are good or bad. You know, they were calling for the restrictions to be lifted before the protest because they wanted to hang out with their mums, bunch of losers. Yep. And then, <laughs> I love you, mum. You know, that was a joke. And But then, you know, then the Black Lives Matter protests happened and suddenly, oh, no, it's 10,000 illegal protesters getting on the bongs. Shut it down. Lock down the state. Also, just quietly, like any professional paid Soros protester knows, don't take drugs to a protest. It's a terrible idea. Um, It makes any interactions with the police a million times worse. And like, especially at First Nations events, they're always like, please don't bring any kind of contraband or anything that might be construed as a weapon because it falls out on the organizers and like the black people at the rally. If Um, anyone had been caught with weed... Like and and charged with a drug offense at one of those protests. Imagine you how better big believe we would have fucking heard about it as well. Yeah. So I don't know where he's getting. Like it's just it's the most tired. This this tweet is full of the most tired stereotypes you can possibly imagine. Absolutely lazy rhetoric. But what would you expect from the liberals? Victoria's finest shit poster. I mean, they're not um, sending their best. I I have a well I think they are Zach I think that's the depressing <laughs> Here's thing the problem. I know Tim Smith mainly because uh, when I started listening to ABC local radio he appeared most Fridays with John Fain uh, for an extremely antagonistic segment called the rap um, and <laughs> I was just looking at his Wikipedia page before we started and apparently John blamed him for why the liberal the Victorian Liberal Party was at its most irrelevant um, which is like <laughs> it's a pretty sick burn <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah well look um, fuck you Tim Smith uh, the only mm, reason yes. he ever floats to the top is because he's done some kind of hilariously mediocre trolling And here we are, again, he's back in the news cycle. This is all part of his long-term plan to take a tilt at the leadership. Um, He wants to be a little mini Victorian Trump. Like, what? that's just the saddest possible aspiration that a human being could could fucking have. So, Tim, I hope that you have an opportunity to get on 10,000 bongs and celebrate your win of shitpost of the week. Because it's going to be your last one, okay? All right, moving on. I somehow doubt that. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably right. I shouldn't make promises I can't keep. Uh, keep posting, Tim. You're really you're, you're doing Chairman spot. Dan a, fa- a fucking favor, <laughs> apparently. 
Okay. I know we need to wrap this up, but there was that great meme of like uh, the Simpsons, and it's the one with the flaming Moe's, and um, Tim Smith is like, "You're a friendless loser," and Dan like, what? just like can't, can't in hear heart, him like, over react. the seventy-five um, percent <laughs> approval rating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, it's good shit. <laughs> okay, are we actually going to wrap this segment up now? Let's move on. Okay, let's wrap it up. Next segment. Yeah, so this is our First Nations story. Uh, we've actually got two, and we, we were trying to decide, you know, should we make this a, a First Nations positivity corner? Both of these are, are, are nice stories, in my opinion. I mean, kind of debatably, but anyway. <laughs> the first one's about Ernie Dingo. Uh, so he's a Yamaji man. He's an actor. Um, he was in a bunch of films, including Crocodile Dundee 2, um, but he also did the first, like... <laughs> public slash known by white people welcome to country ceremony in 1973 um and it was to welcome maori people to noongar land for the aquarius festival i think it was um and the maori delegation sort of said that they didn't feel comfortable doing their traditional you know dances and practices on someone else's land that they hadn't been welcome to mm. so only dingo collaborated with some noongar people to sort of develop the ceremony um to, to welcome them so that's a cool little piece of history um, but the news is that uh, earlier this week he punched a guy for being a racist um, and uh, so, uh, it's not entirely clear what happened but the I guy I don't know came... if punched is, is, is accurate he smacked sure. him he smacked him he, he called it a push uh, or sort of clarified that it was more like a push um, but <laughs> it seems like this guy came up to him and called him some slurs like racial slurs uh, but kind of quietly and Ernie told him to say it again louder so everyone could hear him uh, and then he punched, or pushed him, or, you know, uh, touched him with his hand in an assertive manner. Um, anyway, he's been in the news about it, and he said something like, I'm 63, I don't take that shit from anyone. Um, he, and he said that he'd been called all kinds of racial slurs since he was a kid. I normally turn a blind eye to it, you hear it all the time, sooner or later you're going to have to retaliate. Um, so, you know, good on you, Ernie. That seems like an appropriate response. Um, since then, some people have said that maybe the guy he who like yelled at him and who he attacked uh has like some kind of intellectual disability or something so there's obviously like some complexities there um but anyway yeah that's just a little story that's been in the news recently and one that's a bit more i guess uh in line with the general theme of our show a bit more us poly we have lydia thorpe um who is a gunai gunda jamara woman um and she was the first first nations woman elected to victorian parliament a couple of years ago in 2017 uh but now she's replacing richard de natalia in the federal senate which is super cool uh is such a good upgrade for the greens we have spent the year that we've been making this show basically being like oh, richard de natalia is just such a wet paper bag of a useless mm. no and that's a good i like the way that you're framing that as the an upgrade from richard because typically we think of it in terms of adam bant replacing him because adam bant's the new leader but if you but obviously for that senate spot that's an even bigger upgrade absolutely <laughs> from yeah, to yeah. Thorpe. that's um yeah definitely a step up um and yeah it makes her the ninth ever indigenous member of the federal parliament um <laughs> Which is a depressingly low number, absolutely. Yeah, but um, and the first uh, Indigenous federal representative for the Greens, so yep. that is uh, very cool. Yep, and uh, I think she uh, is a particularly good figure because I think she's kind of like the anti Julian Burnside almost. Like Julian Burnside wasn't really a Greens dude and kind of got brought in because he is mm. famous and has this outside reach or whatever. Obviously, he's a terrible person and a huge racist and a misogynist and all sorts of other things. I'm not trying to compare Thorpe to Burnside exactly, but in terms of the Greens, the Greens did, yeah, <laughs> well, the, head to head, yeah, the, that's true, and she won. But like, yeah, the, the, um, Lydia is this like independently active and well-known community member who. Um, isn't. She's an she's a, she's an actual activist. She has totally been and like public intellectual with, and figure and shit. Yeah, yeah. She was involved with the the Jabberung Heritage Protection mm, mm. Embassy. Uh, she's been instrumental in the organization of the uh, Victorian Treaty with totally. First Nations people. Yep. Uh, and she's got links to Warriors of the Abor Aboriginal Resistance as well. Yep. She's yep. an actual on the ground activist, and those are the kinds of people that. 
uh, an activist party like the Greens should absolutely be promoting, not totally. these kind of celebrity parachuted in from their wealthy careers kinds of yep. leave that shit to the to the Labour and the Libs. Hundred percent. Honestly, yeah. Anyway, I'm gonna watch her career with interest. I think this is a really awesome step for her and for the Greens and for the Parliament. There has been some ridiculous drama about it, obviously, because, like, obviously a black woman can't get elected to any kind of public position without the far-right idiots, sorry, I shouldn't use that word, far-right commentators, shit-talkers, <laughs> uh, terrible people of the country, like, making a, a huge song and dance about it. Um, it's it, so fucking predictable. In particular, what's happened is that she said that she doesn't ast- identify as Australian, which is, like, just the most sensible fucking like sure that is so fine from my point of view you don't have to identify with the colonial genocidal military occupation of your land um but andrew bolt at al think that this means she's like a foreign spy who should be done by section 44 because she's actually like indigenous or whatever um and you also put in here in the notes about her wanting to rename victoria i must have missed that one yeah Oh, it was just some bullshit gotcha journalism from, I'm pretty sure it was the Herald Sun, and they basically yep. called her up being like, we're calling around a bunch of politicians and asking them about all this, uh, these different things, and one of the questions is, would you rename Victoria if that was up for debate? Because it was colonial history, and she was like, yeah, sure, and now, they're, they're, and now every time that they refer to her, they're like, Green's new Green Senator who wants to rename Victoria Jesus takes Christ. place in Senate or whatever. <laughs> like, it's just the the way that these people confect these bullshit narratives. So awful. Just fucking, oh, just fucking pathetic. Just absolutely fucking pathetic. I mean, imagine doing that kind of thing and calling yourself a journalist. Mm. Like, just the absolute lack of shame. Anyway, um, yeah, she like she's going to. Th- this is an indicator of the absolutely like a uh, massively increased amount of scrutiny that she is going to be under for her mm. entire career in the mm. Senate, which is obviously really awful to see, but th- that's the nature of um, being a public indigenous woman in this country. That it's just, that's how it is. But um, she's got, you know, a lot of grassroots support and I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, yeah, what she gets up to in the Senate. I think the, the Greens, the makeup of the Green Senate team, yeah. uh, federal Senate team, is is really strong at the moment because you've got Marine in there as well, yep. who is um, also fantastic. So, yeah, I'm excited to see what they can get done. Totally. All right, do you want to take us on to our next segment, Zach? Fashy Australia. Okay. Yeah, just quickly, ABC cuts $84 million worth of budget cuts to the ABC. They're going to lose about 250 positions across the organization. Some of the top-line cuts include the 745 Morning News Radio Bulletin. Which, just by the way, I find that very funny. I mean, this story is terrible and is another example of the government trying to prevent, like, good journalism happening in the country. But the 745 news radio bulletin is apparently like deeply it's beloved flag- it's flagship yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also like how much does it cost to do a news bulletin right like i mean they're gonna do one at eight o'clock they do one at seven thirty. like i mean i know that there's people who have to be like double checking that their stories have changed and whatever but like i, mean, I i'm just not sure Isn't how it much it's, it's a, a bit longer costs. like the usual news bulletin is like five to ten minutes and yeah and it's because there's like eight o'clock uh program and so the 745 one is kind of the news before that starts because normally there'd mm. be one at eight o'clock i just don't understand why this is a money saver but that is a uh, total sidebar and not that important i just uh, that's my little noon's well, two none cents of it actually this. makes any sense no that's um, true yes and the, yeah it, it figures that it'd be like the yeah i don't know it's it's i mean we have to understand these things as totally ideological and once you do yep. then it doesn't really matter where well, the hits are going to be taken. The ideology comes in the cuts, and like the $84 million budget cut. It's the ABC top brass who make the decisions about how that yes. gets distributed. Um, so, but, anyway. And I'll get into it a little bit later, but yeah, they, yeah. You know, Sorry to, those to decisions are obviously, like, they respond to pressures from the government. True. Um, and quote-unquote the public, which is, you know, really just news limited. Yeah. Um, but so some of the other things being cut is a, the ABC Life uh, online site. That's going to be cut back and rebranded as ABC Local. And the ABC Comedy Channel is going to be basically phased out. And that 
channel is going to be used for just like broader programming apparently. Mm-hmm. But so what will take the biggest hit is factual programming as opposed to, you know, narrative or entertainment or whatever. Um, basically because those narrative and entertainment shows is what's in demand at the moment yep. with streaming on streaming services. Um, so, you know, your Australian stories, your forest correspondents are going to be producing less episodes every year. Yeah, which sucks. Um, I love foreign correspondent. Yeah, and, and like, uh, I, I've heard rumblings as well that the science team and mm. Catalyst will be taking a hit as well. I wasn't able to confirm that. but Yeah, we got someone you know, writing sure... to us to tell us about that, but couldn't couldn't confirm. Yeah, but I'm sure there are people w- within the ABC who know more about this and will be tweeting about it. Um so you won't necessarily be getting the full story from uh, other journalists. Um, you have this uh, very irritating quote from Scott Morrison about the whole situation. He said, quote, if you are working in the media industry today, if you're a journalist today, the safest place to be is the ABC because your revenue is guaranteed in that industry by the government. For journalists working in so many other media companies, they are doing it really tough. Um I mean, that might Amazing. be true, but I'm not sure why that means you should cut ABC funding. <laughs> like, I don't, like that. Oh, it, yeah. Well, well sort of there's a- funding. You are the most secure employees in the media in the entire country. Uh, we're going to have by the one way, journalist whose job is definitely guaranteed. So, so stable. They're going to be doing the 845 bulletin all day. That's it. Um,. So, and just doing a little bit of reading and research around this um, in preparation for this episode, I, I just came across this little narrative, I suppose, that I thought was a really great example of the way that the government sort of wedges the ABC mm. and forces them into these positions where they are making these, uh, they make these concessions that they feel that they have to in order to survive. Um, so, one of the things that has been floated as a possible way to save money at the ABC is leasing out their offices in Sydney, which is, you know, kind of right, right in the middle of the, yeah, just outside the CBD. Um, and there's, there was also a suggestion that maybe they should sell it and then lease it back. Um, so about a year ago, the nationals had a brief, they decided to do a little thing where they publicly said that the ABC is too Sydney centric and that they should move the ABC to a regional center. Well, this was One part of, the of arguments... a whole decentralization campaign and they had a minister for decentralization or something like that, <laughs> or like for spreading the city to the country or something. Yeah. Yeah. One of the arguments that they used was you've got the NBN now, so you can just do all that stuff remotely, which is hilarious. Yep. Um, ignoring, of course, the fact that the ABC has more regional offices than any other Australian media network, but of course, private broadcasters are not going to be subject to the same no. level of criticism uh, that the government levels at the ABC. Yep. Um, because they're opposed to anything publicly funded, full stop. Uh, and the centralization of the ABC offices in Sydney and Melbourne was the result of budget cuts in the first place. Totally. They were they were just they were having to condense their operations in response to earlier cuts. Well, this and is a so classic now, privatization strategy that, exactly that conservative saying, governments yeah. use for all sorts of things, you know, for public transport or whatever. They cut funding. They say, "Oh, this isn't meeting the standards that we expect. We should give it to a private industry who will do it better." Um, it's fucking textbook absolutely textbook stuff and yeah it just shows that there's absolutely no way to win totally and there's no there's no concession that the abc can make that will make it acceptable in the eyes of the government yeah they just they the they are budgeting it out of existence and that's that's the like that's the through line it doesn't matter whether or not they agree to cut their most ideologically like anti-government programs or whatever that you you won't be able to concede enough ground for the government they don't want you to exist yep um so it's a you know a really difficult position for them to be in and we rag on the abc but you know it would be extremely sad and bad if they weren't totally so you know especially you know and there's been a lot of comments over the last couple weeks as, as this news has come down of how good the abc has been throughout the coronavirus crisis and throughout the bushfires as well how vital their reporting has been so you know they're like they're a massive public good, I think, Absolutely. In, in large part, even though I am have been consistently disappointed by a lot of their journalism at 100%. the same time. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to draw a bit of a line with something that we've talked about before, which is the um, like anti-government, um, like the, the 
broad media campaign against government interference in the media um, and anti-censorship and so on um, that we reported on when it first came out. And I was like, yeah, but like three months from now, they're going to realize no one is interested in reading these articles and it's all going to completely stop. Um, and it's just completely happened. And if there was any actual interest in trying to resist the government's efforts at censorship, the conservative media would be just as worried about this as the ABC journalists who are about to lose their jobs are. But in fact, they don't give a fuck about government censorship because they're already like a mouthpiece for the conservative party. So like, it's not, I don't know. Yeah, I I just wanted to draw that connection and like, I, I guess encourage people to be cynical when the conservative media appears to be collaborating with the ABC because actually they have no interest in collaborating or cooperating or supporting them in, in any situation. No, there's glee from the right over these yes. cuts to the ABC. Um, uh, but if that was to go in the other direction, you can you can just imagine what the public discourse would be about it. Like, how could ABC make fun of News Corp journalists losing their jobs? This is so unfair. Yep. Anyway. <sighs> Fashy Australia. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a shame. All right. Well, let's move on um, to... You fucked up. And this is also a pretty depressing story, really. Um, it's kind of fun, but it's also kind of awful. Uh, and this has really, I guess, been the biggest news story of the last couple of days, which is that New South Wales Upper House m- member Shaket Mosulmain had his property raided and documents se- uh, seized by the Australian Federal Police and ASIO. Not 100% I'm saying his name right. Um, Mosulmain is how I've heard most journalists say it, but I know someone with that last name who says Mosulmani. So anyway, um, feel free to at me for mispronouncing. Uh, okay, so uh, this guy, Musselman, was elected in 2009. He was the first Muslim member of the New South Wales Legislative Council, which is the upper house at the state level. And it seems like he was probably being paid by the Chinese Communist Party um, to like advocate for the them in various Australian situations. Um, he's taken about one trip a year to China for the last 10 years. Not that that's like a problem really. And he's had a lot of his expenses paid for by Chinese communist party officials. Um, which again is like not a great look, but it's not really a problem because he's declared them all as he is sort of legally required to do. As far as we know, he's, he's declared them all. Unlike Sam Dastiari, who got done for undeclared stuff being paid for by the Chinese communist party. Okay. And, um, uh, it appears that uh, Mosulmane's friend John Zhang is involved in this whole thing. Um, he's done a bunch of training with a Chinese group called the United Front Work Department. United Front Work Department. Yeah, yeah. So I always feel like that can't be right because it's just such a meaningless uh, like yeah, title. A, that, that's just a series of words in a row. But yeah, it is. No. Um, but they're basically China's like semi-public foreign interference group right so they do a whole lot of like um public propaganda soft diplomacy kind of thing um they run chinese lessons and they do stuff about chinese culture and they try and get people to join like friends of china organizations and that sort of thing uh, but this guy john Zhang, um a bunch of security experts have had their eye on him um and he and Musulman have been friends for a couple of years uh, maybe like five or six years um and last year Zhang got a job as a staffer at Musulman's office um, and the, the ways in which Mosulmane has been advocating for China are kind of hilariously unsubtle. Um, there's a friend of ours who uh, sent us a link uh, in a little group chat that we're in about this, um, saying, like, you know, he, he made it pretty easy for them. Um, and this is one quote from a speech that he gave. The only way for China to reach its potential is for China to force a change to the rules and create a new world order, um, which is pretty funny. Uh, and there's been a bunch of other stuff like that where he's just been like very, very supportive and pro-China about literally everything. But in my opinion, a bunch of the like quote-unquote evidence that journalists are using to like indicate his bias are pretty unfair. Um, there was uh, uh, this is a quote from an, an article from uh, the ABC. This is Mr. Mosselman went further in his February article, savaging Australia's quote mainstream media for having quote publicly played racist cards, offending and insulting many Australian citizens, especially Chinese residents, in actions that 
quote, further deepened the already great suffering of the victim. And he said, today the obsolete scum of white Australia is once again flooding, and the theory of yellow fever has once again surfaced. I think that's basically all entirely that's true. all extremely fair. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, like, there's uh, absolutely some, like, racist slash exaggerated stuff going on here in terms of, like, the things that are being used to prove that he's a spy or whatever. I suspect mm. that he probably is actually compromised by the Chinese government in whatever way, uh, though we, you know allegedly um that's that's a personal suspicion uh, and merely speculation but please feel free to sue me muslim man um there's a line from the abc that they said that the abc has previously been told that national security organizations have been quote chomping at the bit to get a few scalps um which is kind of mm. fucking gross uh, because this is uh, uh he's being investigated under laws that came in uh, under turnbull um a couple of years ago so this is basically the first indication that we've had of active investigations by az on the afp into um uh foreign interference stuff mm. um and yeah, uh, so, uh, multiple sources have confirmed that this scrutiny has dramatically escalated over the last few months, morphing into one of the most significant investigations in ASIO's recent history. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that's that's pretty interesting, and, and no doubt more info about this will come out. We've got a bunch. Uh, they they raided his house and his cars and offices, and like took out a bunch of folders and files and documents and computers and shit. So. Yeah, I guess we'll see what's going on. Uh, Muslim Main has been kicked out of the Labour Party, um, but he's still in Parliament for the moment. And I just wanted to read this line that has been included in all of the various articles that I've read about this, but uh, obviously I'm changing it slightly. Ospol Snackpod does not suggest the allegations that Mr. Musulmane or his office have been covertly influenced by, by Beijing are true, simply that they are being investigated. <laughs> Hopefully whoever listens to this episode skips past the bit where you directly invite him to that sue statement. me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. God, I find these conversations around the, like, yeah, Chinese foreign influence to be, I don't know, I've deep, like, they make me deeply uncomfortable. I just, there's so much, um, there's so much racism and xenophobia tied up in it. Absolutely. Um, and I've had conversations with people where they've basically been like, yeah, but you have to also acknowledge that it's a reality at the same time. Um I don't know. I find it really difficult to balance those two things. So I don't know, but I guess we're going to be hearing more about it because the, the our security agencies have decided it's going to be like their main thing going forward. Totally. Like. Yeah. 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 And also there's a bit of what about in a lot of ways that maybe isn't like strictly relevant, but like no one would blink twice if someone was like shilling for Donald Trump or whatever, like which, a lot of our MPs do like, I'm not sure they've been like personally bribed in the way that people are uh, uh, alleging that Muslimane has or whatever, but like, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, it's fine when it's white America that we're compromised by. Yeah. The, like those conversations could be very irritating because I feel like you get, you can get sort of wedged on either side basically. Mm, Cause mm. if you like, if, if people are super obsessed with, uh, how you know negative Chinese uh, the negative influence of the Chinese government here, uh, but have said absolutely nothing about like American imperialism. You're like, well, it's very obvious why you're focusing on this thing. Yes. But then, on the other hand, you'll have tankies who will bend over backwards in order to excuse like the rounding up of minorities by the Chinese government, and yep. it's like, well, that's not particularly useful either. And no. obviously, there's going to be like nuance on uh, either side of the those arguments but i mean i don't really have a strong uh central thesis or opinion yeah, yeah. on it one way or the other just that yeah i think it's something that i guess that we're gonna have to reckon with increasingly mm. uh just before we wrap this segment i didn't put this in the notes but there was something i heard on the radio about these three c's which are the characteristics of um foreign interference that's like not cool which are covert coerced and cash money yeah, I think uh, corruption. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Cash money. Yeah, yeah. No, it's corruption. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, uh, so people like secretly doing stuff, uh, which the uh, allegation is that John Zheng was uh, falsely representing what he was doing there. Uh, 
the coercion, unclear if that's gone on with Musulmane, but like, yeah, taking photos of someone doing something and then threatening them. Uh, and then corruption, which is more like, you know, traditional bribery or whatever. So, yeah. We, um, you have sort anyway. of bread and butter, bad political stuff, really. Corruption. Be a bog standard, meat and potatoes. Exactly. Corruption. Yeah. All right, I think that's enough about that particular fuck-up, but uh, we're going to have our mains now, Zach, and there's another awful fuck-up. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word for it, but the person involved is a fuck-up, if nothing else. Uh, yeah, so before we get into this one, just a content warning that we're going to be discussing sexual harassment um, for basically the entire time. So if you don't want to hear about that, this now would be the time to to switch off, and we'll catch you next week. So this has been the biggest story of the week in Australian media, I would say, um, concerning Dyson Hayden, a former uh, High Court justice. Um, so an independent inquiry by the High Court has found that he sexually harassed six of his female associates. Um, that's like an internal confidential workplace inquiry. doesn't have any legal ramifications um, for him because sexual harassment is not necessarily a crime. It's it's a civil wrong. It's something that you can sue someone for compensation for. Um, and some sexual harassment might qualify as a crime as well, but in and of itself is not a crime. So this is kind of uh, weirdly a workplace issue. That is mm. kind of technically how it is framed. Um but so this, the release of this report, the, this um, confidential report conducted by the High Court, um, coincided with the release of a long Sydney Morning Herald investigation into Dyson Hayden, uh, which, you know, the like that obviously is intentional. The uh, journos who wrote the Sydney Morning Herald investigation have been working on the story for a while, and they were waiting for the permission of the women involved in the High Court inquiry to publish the report so that they could publish their story. Gotcha. So this was, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the story, which I, I do recommend reading, we'll put the, the link for in the notes. And this is where, you know, almost all of the information in this segment is going to be coming from, is from this story by two journalists, Kate McClymont and Jacqueline Maley. So they worked on that investigation, like I said, for like two and a half years. And it covers a number of allegations beyond those dealt with in the internal high mm. court inquiry. So it's a bigger and broader story than just the high court uh, the the harassment that happened in the high court, uh, and it you know involves multiple senior legal figures and spans over you know many years. So it's a big, big story. And I, this guy hasn't really been in the public eye so much over the last few years, but obviously when he was a high court justice, which was oh, I can't remember the exact years, but it was it was like he finished up a, like five or six years ago, didn't he? Yeah, I think I think. It, maybe finished up in like 2013, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but he, you know, he was known as, he was a public right-wing figure basically and mates with uh, several senior liberals, including John Howard. Um, and there Are was... You, you going to go into the dodgy shit with him and the Libs uh, fundraiser? Yeah, the Royal so? Commission. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the fundraiser, yep. but also the Royal Commission. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's the same same kind of story. Uh, well, yeah, we may as, may as well cover it now. Fuck it. Um, so when Tony Abbott uh, set up the, his royal commission into unions, which was obvious, like just a naked attack on his political enemies. He put Dyson Hayden in charge. Uh, Hayden had just retired from the High Court, and uh, Hayden was the sole commissioner for that royal commission into unions, mm -hmm. which put a number of senior Labour people on the stand, including uh, Bill Shorten. Yes. He was like he had to give testimony for like two days or whatever, and it was a big news story at the time. Uh, from memory, 2015, mm -hmm. maybe. Um, <laughs> hopefully that I'm not right wrong me, about yeah. that. Um, but at the time that Hayden was the sole commissioner for this royal commission, he accepted an offer to speak at a Liberal Party event, which was characterized by Labour. Well, Labour characterized it as a fundraiser. I right, right. Like, there's some kind of dispute around that, but like, sure. I don't know. I mean, I don't really, I don't trust any of these fucking people. So, yeah. hey. Um, but it was, a, yeah, an official Liberal Party event that he was invited to speak at, and he, like, conditionally agreed to it. He said, yeah, I'll do it as soon as I'm done with this Royal Commission thing, as if that's, like... Oh, so, yeah, that's, like, made it not a conflict of interest. Hella objective, yeah. yeah, yeah. Trying to, like, duck the issue, basically, and then 
uh, it, w- it was made public that he'd agreed to speak at this thing and immediately uh, Labour and the unions tried to get him disqualified from that position as Royal Commissioner. But he would have to be the one to disqualify himself yeah. because Tony Abbott wasn't going to do it. So there was a campaign to get him to disqualify himself and he didn't. Uh, and But his like conflict of interest obviously massive oversh- massively overshadowed the results of the commission itself. Especially because the commission didn't find anything. Like, it, it basically found no one had done anything wrong and there was no reason for the, like... Uh... Well, I think that he dis- that his final report said that he had found widespread and repeated misconduct throughout the union movement uh, and recommended that around 40 people, uh, 40 officials... Were, would be like prosecuted, and at the end, uh, since then, there's been a total of one prosecution um, as a result of this royal commission. Huh, uh, that's and weird. Found- it, it, that's almost what you'd expect if the commission wasn't actually an attempt to improve industrial relations and was actually just uh, an excuse to make Bill Shorten look dodgy for political reasons. But I wouldn't be so cynical as to suggest that was what was going on. No, come on. The Liberal Party loves industrial relations. They're the party of industrial relations. That's probably um, technically true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, I just before we get off this little yep, bit, yep. There was, I, I found this um, this funny quote. It was actually it's, it's on the Wikipedia page um, <laughs> for the Royal Commission into into the unions, um, and it's a quote from Frank Bongiorno, professor of history at the Australian National University, has described this report as having quote. All the impact of last year's telephone book being dumped in a wheelie bin. Um, <laughs> it's pretty brutal. <laughs> which, yeah, um, well put, Frank. So there's a little bit of context for the kind of person that Dyson Hayden is. Yeah. Politically, how, and, you know, obviously, I mean, gives you a taste of the impunity with which he operates, right? Like, that is a very flagrant public conflict of interest to admit to. <laughs> yeah. Whilst heading up a fucking royal commission into the unions like jesus christ anyway yep but so to get back to the story at hand uh this uh report uh confirms and the sydney morning herald investigation details that dyson hayden had a pattern of harassing sexually harassing young women particularly his associates so if you don't know what an associate is they're basically uh, a judge's personal assistant and it's like a really highly sought after position for recent law grads so it's it's often people's first job out of uni they usually go for about a year and they involve certain duties like um it can, it can differ depending on the judge but it might be proofreading judgments doing legal research dealing with uh, admin or whatever but you do you spend a lot of time with uh, the, the judge, judge. Yeah. and there's often going to be a little bit of overlap in terms of like you know, you order their lunch for them and yes. very and that kind of personal assistant stuff. Or um, write and, their judgments while they're meant to be delivering them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> As the case may uh, be. Um, yeah. And we, we do have a friend who um, was a judge's associate for a year and she said that basically it's an extremely unique relationship within the mm. legal profession. So I think that's an important thing to remember. Also, something like uh, 90% of high court judges were high court judges' associates after they finished their degree. So um, if you want to be a high court judge, this is like the way to do it is to become a high court judge's associate. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of like... uh, Obviously, with all professions like this that have a high barrier of entry, it's a lot of who you know. Mm. Um, and so you can imagine these relationships create an absolutely massive power imbalance. I mean, the, you've got kids coming out of law school mm. in their early or mid-20s, and they're basically their entire future career is reliant on their, their relationship with this judge. They totally. need a good reference. And you can imagine you know, how far a bad word from a judge would travel. Like, yep. you know, no, my, my assistant is um, bad for X, Y, Z reasons. So in the context of this highly... Uh, imbalanced relationship Dyson Hayden preyed on the young women in his office Um, and I'm going to go through a couple of the details of the cases that are covered um, in the High Court Inquiry and and, and these are details that I got from the Sydney Morning Herald investigation Um, so just a heads up that there's going to be a couple of details in here about sexual harassment 
So one of the stories was um, from about a woman named uh, Chelsea Tabbitt. She was 22 when she started her associateship with Hayden, who he would have been probably, yeah, in, in his uh, 60s at the time. Uh, and on her first day on the job, he invited her to his room at the private club that he stays in when he's in Sydney. Uh, he started touching her and putting his hand on her thigh. And when she said she wanted to go and get a cab home, he offered to go with her. And the article has a quote from him saying, uh, from, uh, from Tabit, who said that he said, you don't know what kind of creeps are out there. Um, just fucking disgusting. But so she left and noticed that she had a missed call. Tabit left and noticed that she had a missed call from Judge Hayden's previous associate, a woman named Alex Eggerking. And Eggerking had been intending to tell Tabit to not be alone with the judge. But she didn't want to tell Tabit on her first day because she didn't want to overwhelm her. And fucking hell. And that, it's the first day that he did it as like that's it, day like, number one. Day this number is clearly one. Clearly something that he does purposefully and like Absolutely. with just malice aforethought. Completely and, entitled. Mm, mm. Just feels completely entitled to to the bodies of the women that work for him. Um, but the thing about that little detail about the previous associate knowing and you know intending to warn the incoming mm. associate about his behavior just that really stuck with me and, and really it just strikes me as so fucked because you know the responsibility for policing this guy and protecting his you know people who potential victims of his it, it falls on the women themselves and his mm. previous victims it's mm. you know these women are still having to take responsibility for men's predatory behavior totally. and it's like it's women's responsibility to keep each other safe from these guys and it's just yeah that i found that a, a, a deeply enraging detail of that story um, and the other associate of his, uh, who I, I think it was uh, Chelsea Tabbitt and also this other woman, uh, Rachel Patterson Collins, who made the first two complaints that kind of kicked off the inquiry. I think they um, might also be uh, represented by the same legal team and that there are other women who have uh, separate legal teams supporting them, basically. I'm not 100% about that, but uh, I think I heard the lawyer on the radio a couple of days ago. But Yeah, jo- they're, they're being represented by Josh Bornstein. who is- From Morris Blackburn, yeah. Yeah, kind of a like a, by Australian standards, a well-known lawyer, I suppose. He tweets a lot. Um, so Rachel Patterson Collins uh, started as Hayden's associate in 2005. She was 26 years old. And uh, when she started the associateship, she confided in, in Hayden. And she told him that she was feeling excluded by the other associates and was being bullied by them, having a really hard time settling into Canberra. Um, and Hayden responded by making a sexual advance towards her. That was his response. And I've got this quote here from Collins. Instead of helping me, he tried to take advantage of my vulnerability and I had to leave my position early. Which, you, yeah, I think that sums it up. Someone comes to you for help and you see that they need help and use that as an opportunity to yep. prey on them. That just absolutely I also, fucking sickening behavior. Um, I... I just wanted to draw that connection about leaving the position early and what I said before about the majority of high court judges having been high court judges associates and something that a lot of kind of mainstream legal professional commentators have been saying about this is that this is like preventing women from becoming judges basically Um, and that this kind of like sexism and violence and abuse directed towards young women at the start of their careers directly means that there then are less women in positions of power at the end of their careers because people do this shit and then leave the job and don't want to be a lawyer anymore Uh, or they they lose faith in the system or they feel unsafe trying to participate in it and so on. No, absolutely. I think it's really important to see this kind of predatory behavior as a, a part of a broader system of misogyny and paternalism that um, keeps women out of positions of power, for sure. There's a direct continuum there. Um, so one of the other incidents that was covered in the City Morning Herald report, which obviously wasn't covered by the High Court inquiry, um, was that he was kicked out, basically, from this visiting professorship at Oxford University, um, after he, uh, a student said that he groped her. Uh, and there was another incident uh, at Canberra University where he assaulted the, the then president of the ACT Law Society, a woman named Noor Bloomer. The, the total impunity with which he operates to harass 
you know, not just people in his direct employment, but like people in public positions of authority, hmm. like just astounding. Now, so there was a statement from the uni at the time. Mr. Hayden was, quote, removed from the event and returned to his accommodation following a complaint of inappropriate behavior from a student the same night. So this behavior was noted by the university at the time. You know, this is not a secret. Um, and Bloomer herself made a contemporaneous file note. In other words, she wrote down exactly what happened at the time so that she could refer back to it later. And this massively helped the investigation. Mm. According to Jacqueline Maley, one of the journos from the, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald piece, she said, that's like gold. It opened up another line of inquiry to us. So, yeah, I mean, just the, like, presence of mind um, and, yeah. like, internal fortitude to be sexually harassed by a high court judge and then go back and just, like, write it all, like, write it Make all Make sure down, that you like, have that evidence for later, yeah. Like, it's fucked that women have to have that level of, like, strength mm. um, in order to operate, but... You know, it's also, uh, I definitely ad- strongly admire it. And it, it's um, been a huge help in bringing this stuff to light later down the track as well. Um, so Hayden's lawyers uh, released a, a statement on his behalf. Any allegation of predatory behavior or breaches of the law is categorically denied by our client. Our client says that if any of his conduct has conduct has caused offense, that result was inadvertent and unintended, and he apologizes for any offense caused. As if, like, dude, just don't fucking say anything. Like, you don't have to issue this bullshit, fake, sorry, non-apology. If you were it's by not, me like, assaulting being you, harassed yeah. is not it's, that's offensive. Not something that causes offense. No, that's not something that is fixed with a Ugh. fucking apology. Just, the, but that's it. Like it reveals a complete lack of understanding of the dynamics at play, and, and like a, the impact a of his felt own behavior. Impunity. Like Absolutely. he knows he's not going to have to deal with this shit, so he can just say whatever bullshit he wants. It's a literal, like, yeah, an inquiry from the high court. Yeah, <laughs> that, like, yeah. <laughs> that found that these allegations were true. So. The the inquiry revealed uh, that two other, at least two other high court judges knew about the allegations against Hayden. One of them was told by he, their own associate who was contacted by Collins after she was harassed. Mm. So this is known by many people. I think you could pretty fairly call it an open secret within yep. the legal profession. And that's how it is with so many men in positions of power as we discussed earlier, you know, women have to learn to work around these guys. They tell each other who to watch out for, uh, who to avoid, and they have to plan their fucking day around, like, at, at least in part around avoiding these abusive guys who are, are just mm-hmm. basically completely untouchable because they carry so much power. Speaking up against this guy was unthinkable for an associate but, you know, people further up the, the food chain as well, like these also high court judges, other judges... Also knew about it refused to do anything or yeah. declined, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Um, but so the high court is conducting uh, a further inquiry around this. Um, they've invited over 100 other uh, associates to, to kind of tell their stories. Good. So this is probably not the last we'll hear of this. And, you know, some people saying that this uh, is going to be a reckoning for the legal profession, um, I guess we'll have to wait and see whether or not that's yeah. true. But, like, it's, you know, long been understood that the law is a boys' club and that there is far too much uh, power placed in the hands of individuals who over people who want to enter the profession, whether that's in the context of uh, an associateship or partners at a law firm who get to decide whether or not somebody gets to, you know, pass the bar, uh, not pass the bar, but... Um, you know, whether or not they're going to get, give them references, etc. Mm, mm. But so, I mean, very predictably, the right-wing establishment has come out in defense of this fucking creep. Of course. Uh, John Howard said, quote, I stand by all of the High Court appointments made by my government. Dyson Hayden was an excellent judge of the High Court of Australia, which, if you're John Howard, is true. Um, sure. Yeah, he's a huge conservative piece of shit. In other words, he was absolutely perfect for the reasons Exactly who you chosen. thought he was when you appointed him. Yeah. yeah. Then, like... And, like, as if we're going to get an apology from fucking John Howard about yeah. uh, sexual harassment committed by someone that he appointed. No. No way. Uh, the Australian uh, has also 
come out in full force behind Hayden. Uh, they put out a piece called Concerns Over a Fair Go for Hayden, which I was looking Jeez. for. I've seen lots of screen Oh, these poor it, high court it, justices always being railroaded by the mainstream political establishment. Apparently, they seem to have taken this piece down now. Good. Um, because obviously there was um, some outcry about it. But the piece basically complained that Hayden wasn't given the opportunity to cross-examine the women, which was just such a weird thing to insist he yes. should have the right to do. And it also had this line, uh, those close to the affair said that the objective of the complainants was not apparent. They did not seek a financial settlement. Like, why would these okay. women say anything <laughs> about this unless they wanted money? But of course... If they were seeking a financial yeah. settlement, then it would be all about the money. So you yeah. see the way that there's just no fucking way to win with these assholes. They're going into bat for this predatory piece of shit because that's what they do. There's no, yep. you know, like, <laughs> there's no ideological or moral grounding. They're not worried about, oh, the due, due process of the law. It's just, you know, it's just all about defending their mate. That's, that's, yep. that, that's their only that's motivation. Mm. Yeah, thanks for doing all that research, Zach. That's uh, it's such a horrifying story, and I'm I know we're running short on time, so I just want to do a quick sort of related rant, but I'll be as quick as possible. And I, I guess this is also drawing on the stuff that I talked about after Pell's acquittal, um, and also you know a story that I've mentioned before about Penny's voice about a woman who um, tried to get her complaints about sexual assault heard by a court and the judge was a huge piece of shit who was like, oh, but were you asking for it and stuff? And there were heaps of complaints about this judge and whatever. Um, But we know that the courts don't deal well with sexual violence, sexual assault, sexual harassment, these sort of related issues. And we know the courts don't deal well with police violence as we've seen in Australia and in America and, and everywhere else. And like, I think that it's really tempting in these sorts of situations to think about like, I don't know, like everyone on the news has been talking about like, oh, what cultural change? And you just said before, this might be a reckoning for the legal profession or whatever. But I think that all of those are like um, idealistic ideas about what the problem here is. Mm. And and that the actual courts themselves are designed to protect property and prevent powerful people from being held to account for their actions and to punish the poor. That is the purpose of the institution. And yes, there are some really good people working in there. I don't mean to demean or or denigrate the hard work that any of our friends do or the many people who aren't our friends who are working in the legal profession trying to help people. (laughs) And like, I'm not saying that everyone in it has corrupt motivations or anything like that. I'm saying the system is inherently designed and built on and evolved from and is a function of uh, class war and of uh, male supremacy and white supremacy and that we're never going to be able to reform them in such a way as to uh, make the courts hold powerful people to account. And this is just one more fucking example of the high courts literally like consisting of abusive men, right? Like it's not just that Mm. they're helping abusive men. The court is an abusive man, right? Like... Uh, anyway, I, this is sort of a bit of an abstract. There's no amount of internal thing. cultural change that can undo that structure. Exactly. Um, the, the courts aren't designed to mete out justice, and we need to stop pretending that they are, or that they can be meaningfully reformed. Um, anyway, that's 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 my little rant about the state apparatus is not neutral, and I, I, I always feel a bit bad, kind of having these like abstract political analysis rants when this is about real women who are actually. Uh, harassed and abused and i don't mean to detract from their personal experience by having this like broader point about the courts or whatever but yeah i I just always like to draw that connection um uh, about the systemic issues Mm. yeah i think it's important to do because yeah it's and and i felt in two minds about going into the details Mm. of the incidences of harassment because Ultimately, I think the story is, you know, more closer to what you just said as opposed mm. to about this particular guy. But I think it's important to confront what the day to day reality of of these actions look like and the the impact that they have on people. I mean, yeah, the if you read the full investigation from the Sydney Morning Herald, Rachel Patterson Collins was just devastated by these yeah. incidents. Um, just uh, clearly on a deeply, you know personal fundamental mm. level was uh, yeah really really shaken by it as you would be uh, of course um 
And no one should ever have to deal with that kind of thing from their boss, let alone a guy who was one of the most powerful people in the country at the time. So, uh, yeah, you know, I I, I guess it's you want to find a balance between Mm. um, describing the actions of these uh, horrible individuals, but also contextualizing them within a broader structure that not only enables them, but is literally run by them and designed to protect them, as you say, Noob. Definitely. All right, we're we're getting uh, a bit over time again, but um, why don't we finish off with a little positivity corner? Positivity corner. Why not? Yeah. Okay. So today, the day that this episode's coming out, Sunday twenty eighth of June, is Whale Census Day. Um, My favorite day of the year. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, run by ORCA, the Organization for Research and Rescue of Cetaceans in Australia. Good name. Nice uh, coincidence, and- yeah. <laughs> um, and there's two little uh, nice whale stories. One is that the humpback whale population has been really uh, rapidly growing over the last couple of years. Um, last year, there were 300 more whales than the year before. And that year, there were 500 more than the year before. So that's a really good sign about these hum- humpback whale populations um, growing. Um, and if you, listener, live near a coast and have some binoculars, um, you can take part in Whale Census Day. Um, and there's, like, events all, all up and down the coast. So, yeah, uh, look up Orca and um, go, go have a look at some whales. The other cool thing is that there's a very famous whale named Migaloo who's been seen off the coast of Queensland. Um, he's a white whale. Um, he's the only entirely white humpback whale known to humans. Um, and <laughs> Doesn't he, Migaloo mean white guy? It does, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so it's a it's a word from uh, the Bachelor language, which is the um, indigenous community around Hervey Bay where he was first right. spotted a couple decades ago, and it means white fella. Um, and it okay. was actually named by the elders of the Bachelor people, which is cool, um, especially given that it's like that's the name that they chose. Like it would be kind of weird <laughs> for a white person to choose that. Seems yeah, but uh, no, no. Yeah. And, and the elders actually had some statement about how they um they see white animals as a reminder to include everyone and treat everyone equally, even though people are different or whatever. So that's an interesting like angle on what a white whale is for them. Mm. Uh, but anyway, he's been missing for the last couple of years and he's been spotted again off the coast of Queensland. It's not a hundred percent confirmed that it's Migaloo, but um, it probably is. And so everyone's and if it's not, excited that's about that. Another completely white humpback whale, which is totally, yeah, which very is also cool. cool. Yeah. I mean, I want it to be Migaloo. Don't get me wrong. But I'll take um, I'll, I'll take the silver lining of a second white whale. Totally, yeah. I, I got into a bit of a rabbit hole, and apparently there's like a big white whale community, and like all of them <laughs> have names, and the ones that are like mostly white with a little black splotch or whatever, and like yeah, people know all of the white whales off by heart and shit. Oh, very cute. It's very cute. So anyway, whales they're pretty cool. Uh, go spot them with your binoculars. No doubt. Cool. Well, that brings us to the end of the show for this week. Um, Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, We want to send a special shout out. Thank you to our new patron, Amina, who has also (laughs) recently, uh, they they are a freshly minted mod on the Ozpole shitposting Facebook group. Uh, So welcome to the family, Amina. We appreciate your support both in kind and in money. Uh, if yeah. you like what we do and you want to support us, please head over to patreon.com slash Pod. You can sign up for as little as $1 a month, which gets you a monthly bonus episode plus a bunch of other stuff. This month, we re- released an absolutely bumper episode about QAnon, which I think is really fun. And yeah. I definitely recommend um, listening to it after smoking a little joint, which is how I edited it. And I was sitting Get on there the being bongs. Like, Damn, yeah. this shit is so so deep. Yeah, do it Tim Smith style. Get on the 10,000 bongs and listen to our bonus episode. Um, let us know how you find it. Um, otherwise, leave us reviews over on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you can leave reviews where you listen to podcasts. Share us on social media. We really appreciate it. Um, that's probably going to do us for this week. Uh, this is normally where the sign-off would go, but I'm still thinking of a new one. Fuck cops, crunch, crunch.